0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Uh, This Lord's Day, if you were with us last week, you know that we've had a slight pause in our series in Acts uh, this month of December, this Advent season, uh, to consider some of the passages in Scripture that point towards the promise of Christ. And so, last week we looked at Genesis 3.15, which God gives that Christmas promise there of the Messiah who would come. And in that promise, He said there would be great hostility, but ultimately there would be peace uh, through the Messiah who would crush the head of the enemy. And so we talked about that promise last week. Uh, The great thing about God's Word is that throughout salvation history then, after giving that promise, God continues to remind His people of the promise. And He does this through the prophets who would prophesy about Jesus and prophesy about the Messiah's coming. And that's the text that we come to today today. One of those prophecies where Isaiah is writing in a day and age where there is much distress and there's much darkness and there's much worry and anxiety among God's people. And in that context, he reminds them of what God has promised, what God has done, and what God will do. And so I think it's a very fitting text for us today who are in a place in history where there's much darkness, where there's much worry and concern, where... For God's people, we're we're anxious at times and we're surrounded by evil and by darkness and by wickedness. We too need to be reminded of what God has promised, of what God has done, and what God will one day do. And so I hope you'll be encouraged along those lines as we look to this passage in Isaiah 9. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 7. And so if you're able to stand, if you will, out of reverence for God's Word, it is holy and inspired And I want to read it for us now, this prophecy that comes through uh, Isaiah. These are the words inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they tell us this. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations... Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father God, we come before you today in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to understand your word. Lord, to apply it in our lives and to be radically transformed by the gospel that it proclaims. And we ask this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Christmas is in full swing, and with it, uh, the culture, the the obsession that comes this time of year with with those special gifts that are hard to find, uh, it seems like every year there's some toy, some gift, some item that there's not enough of, and, and everybody wants the same thing, and so... Uh, people will go to great lengths to get whatever this hot item of the season is. Uh, Honestly, I don't know what it is this year, but I can remember uh, a number of things over the years. I can remember uh, from my youth, uh, not so different than today, uh, the anticipation around Star Wars. And so uh, back in the 1970s, there was uh, great stir and commotion, and everybody wanted the Star Wars toys, and there weren't enough of them. And so... Uh, for most young boys and girls, uh, like myself, we were excited uh, when we opened up that Star Wars toy. As years would go on, there would be other toys that would be in demand. There wouldn't be enough of them, and so uh, go to the 1980s, and, and you had the Cabbage Patch doll. Uh, how many of you had a Cabbage Patch doll? A few. Nick had one. All right. Well, and Matt, we'll, we'll talk about these things this week. <laughs> Uh, the Cabbage Patch Kids, if you remember that, in the 80s, that was a, a hard to find item. In fact, I think I remember this correctly uh, with my folks, uh, them getting a hot tip from someone as the maybe a dark alley they could buy one in for my sister, because girls play with... We'll talk about that later. Uh, uh, but there's always something like that. I, I do remember specifically uh, there in the late 90s, this was actually uh, before our son was born, but I remember... The big toy that year in 1996 was Tickle Me Elmo. Did you have a Tickle Me Elmo? Okay. Well, some of you may have. Uh, there weren't enough of them, and so like most of these hot seasonal toys, people were going to, to crazy efforts to get a Tickle Me Elmo. And in fact, that was probably one of the more uh, bizarre uh, things in our Christmas fads because people were paying thousands of dollars for a plush red something that when you touched it, it would laugh. People would do anything to get one. In fact, I remember specifically a news story uh, that year around Christmas time, there was a Walmart and it was rumored that they were getting some Tickle Me Elmo's. And so hundreds of people showed up at this Walmart and this poor clerk had a box in his hand. And they just assumed that's what was in the box. And there was a stampede in that Walmart. And this guy got a broken jaw, broken ribs, a concussion, all because they thought he had this toy. That year, people would pay insane amounts of money for a Tickle Me Elmo. The highest one recorded was a shopper in Denver who paid $7,100 for a Tickle Me Elmo. I went on eBay last night. And you can get a Tickle Me Elmo in mint condition with free shipping for $9. (laughs) Why the difference? Why one year would people be willing to pay thousands of dollars and now it's virtually worthless? Well, it's because that's the fad of our culture. There's always that hot new item that people quickly lose interest in and so... Most of us have already had that experience of you're so excited to give a child, give a grandchild, that special gift, you've you've sought it out, you've worked hard to get it, you give it to them only to find within a few months it's been lost, broken, or if it survives, it'll make it to the church's annual missions yard sale. These things lose value very quickly. And the great irony is, is that Christmas is a time when we celebrate a gift that cannot be measured in its worth. we celebrate a gift that does not lose value, when we celebrate a gift that is not just some changing fad, but is the gift of Christ given to the nations for all of eternity. And so, as I mentioned last Lord's Day, and we'll mention again next Lord's Day, this is a time of year when as Christians, we need to be reminded of this gift. We need to be reminded of this promise that was given long ago, And how God then through the prophets spoke of this promise by reminding his people of who he was, of what he had done, of what he would one day do. And we need that reminder today as well. Although we live on another side of the promise from those that Isaiah was speaking to, Christ has come, we have experienced that in salvation history. We now live in a time when we are between the first and second comings of Christ. Of the first and second advent, the already and the not yet, between what has been accomplished and what will one day come to fruition and fullness. And like Isaiah's day, when people were surrounded by darkness, when they were anxious and worried, we too find ourselves in a place in history when many are worried. When we turn on the evening news and we see wickedness and evil and darkness... And so we too need this reminder from God's Word this morning. As we walk through it, we see, point one there in your outline, this, this reminder that God is giving through Isaiah about this great light. He's telling His people, point one there, that a great light will expose great darkness. Uh, that's the reference He makes here in verses 2 and, and following there. People are walking in darkness, but they've seen this great light, and this great light comes into this deep darkness. And now to understand what Isaiah is writing about, it helps to understand the context of what's taking place here. If you go back in Isaiah chapter 8, you find the context is a familiar one for God's people in the Old Testament. There's this pattern that you see throughout the Old Testament where God would bless His people... God would make promises to His people. God was faithful to His promises. But God's people always struggled then, like we struggle now, to be faithful to their God. And in their struggle, many times they would abandon God and they would go worship the false gods in the lands that they lived in. And so God in His grace and mercy to draw them back to Himself, He would allow foreign pagan nations to come in and to oppress His people, to capture His people, to enslave His people, until ultimately they would return to Him and He would return their fortunes. But it's this cycle that goes on and on and on again throughout the Old Testament. And we're in part of that cycle here in Isaiah 9. At this point, if you look at your scripture there, you might have a heading in Isaiah 8 that says, The Coming Assyrian Evasion. This invasion would come because the king of Assyria had been given by the Lord the authority to come and conquer His people. And in conquering His people, the land would then be filled with darkness. And so Isaiah is describing this darkness as he talks to God's people. Notice, for example, what he says there in chapter 8. Uh, Verse 19, he talks about how the people, when surrounded by wickedness, that they're going to turn to all kind of false forms of spirituality because God's not going to be responding to their prayers. And they're going to desperately want some type of spiritual connection. So verse 19, he says, When they say to you, Inquire of mediums and necromancers. He's speaking here of of people who said they could communicate with the spirit world. And he's saying, don't do it. Don't turn to them, but that's going to be the temptation in your day. You're going to be tempted to turn to those who say they have spiritual power, mystical powers, psychic powers, and you're going to turn to them instead of turning to God. We haven't come very far from that, have we? We live in a day and age where it seems people are, are obsessed with those who claim to have these powers. And we have re- reality TV shows that follow people around who say they have these psychic powers. And, and while for many of us, this might seem kind of like a, a joke, this is not a joke to millions of people. People who are today turning over their life savings to psychics in hopes that they'll have some message for them from beyond. Read a story, news, you might have seen it just this last month. man in New York had lost the love of his life and in his desperation to hear from her and to communicate with her, he spent over $700,000 on two psychics. His life savings. Everything he had, he spent because he desperately wanted to connect with the spirit world. Isaiah is writing in that type of context and he says, listen, don't turn to darkness looking for light. Don't turn to wickedness looking for light. Remember that light is on its way. Have faith. Persevere. Light is coming. And so he speaks about this great light that would come in verses 1 and 2. And he reminds them and he reminds us of what light does. When light comes, it exposes what's in the darkness. But apart from light, so many times we fear the darkness because we fear what's there. And we fear what we can't see. And many of us struggle with this. Now... Some of you weren't willing to say that you had a Tickle Me Elmo or a Cabbage Patch Kid, so you probably won't admit to being afraid of the dark. Okay. But, but you might be. I'll, I'll admit, I don't like the dark. Coming into this church this morning, I didn't have any problems because everything's light. Light coming in through the windows, lights are on. I didn't think a thing about who was in church, what was going on. I had no fear, no worries, no anxieties. But come up here Saturday night at about 10.30, it's a little bit different. In fact, I laugh when people talk to me about how sacred this building is. There's nothing sacred about this place Saturday night at 10.30. It's spooky. I walk in, and the first thing I do, if I'm coming to my office to pick something up, if I have to run up here to fill up the baptistry or turn on the heater, the first thing I do is I start flipping every light switch in this building on. I start turning on lights for hallways I'm not even going to go down. I start yelling, is anybody here? If I hear somebody respond, then I run out of the building. (laughs) Why would I do that? Well, why do you do that? Why do you get creeped out in your house at night when it's dark, but during the daytime you're walking around and everything's fine? Why is it that when we walk through the woods during the day, we call it a nature hike, And when we walk through it at night, we call it a horror movie. (laughs) What's different? It's the darkness. And there's something about darkness that then brings about anxiety and worry and fear because we can't see what's out there. And we fear the unknown. When Isaiah writes to God's people, he's writing to them in a time of darkness. In a time where they fear the unknown. In a time when they are worried and they are anxious. And in that time he says to them you don't need to fear a great light is coming in fact he reminds them of what we would then learn as we go through the gospels that jesus would be referred to as the light of the world jesus said of himself in john chapter 3 that he was the light that had come into the world and he tells them there's going to be people who love darkness who don't want the light they're going to retreat from the light because the light exposes sin And so there's kind of two reasons there that we fear darkness. Partially we fear darkness because of what we don't know. And then at times the darkness, we fear in our darkness the light because we don't want what we do know is in the darkness to be revealed. And so Jesus says very clearly, the light's going to shine in the darkness. It's going to reveal what's there. And so as a result, you and I have nothing to fear. And that's a word we need to hear today. Because just like the people in Isaiah's day, just like they were anxious and worried and concerned about their culture and the darkness, so many of us, Christians, believers, were worried and we're anxious. And if you're not, just turn on the evening news and you'll get anxious and you'll get worried. It seems more and more, as the weeks go on, as the months go on, as the years go on, more and more believers are coming to me worried about our culture, worried about our nation, worried about our world, worried about where the next Islamic jihadist is going to decide to take out a gun and just wipe people out. Worried about when the next massacre is coming. Worried about when the next... Whatever it might be is going to happen. And if we're not careful as believers, we live in constant fear of what's going to happen. And as God's people, we need to be reminded that we don't need to fear. We don't need to be worried. We don't need to be anxious because He is the light. And we can trust in Him. And sometimes we get so consumed by our anxiety and worry that we completely forget to trust in God and have faith in Him, and we just get overwhelmed with the darkness, and that's not new, by the way, in our culture today. Now, this has been a struggle for Christians for, for years. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who many of you know that name from *The Chronicles of Narnia*, *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, to theologian, he wrote many things, but one that caught my attention on these lines was something he wrote during his day when people were living in fear of the atomic bomb. It was wartime, and Christians, non-Christians, they were just fearful of the day the bomb would drop. And so they woke up every morning in fear, and they went to bed every night in fear. And Lewis said this, and I think it's a good word for us today. In response to this, he said, the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, then let that bomb come, and when it comes, let it find us doing sensible and human things Praying and working and teaching and reading and listening to music and bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint. Probably talking about sundry out there. And a game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about bombs. Friends, that's a good word for us today. Because if we're honest, a lot of us are huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about bombs terrorists isis a wicked culture politics you can just keep going down the line and the word from the lord for us is the word to god's people in the day of isaiah a great light has come and will come we need not fear and the reason we don't fear point 2 there in your outline is this is because a great light will deliver god's people from great darkness A great light will deliver God's people from great darkness. This is what Isaiah then unpacks for God's people. And he begins to explain to them, okay, God's promise will come true. And He's going to deliver you from darkness. So you don't need to be scared of the dark. You don't need to be scared of this culture, the wickedness. And then he says, listen, remember what God has done. (laughs) Can't you remember? I mean, that's a good thing for us is just to stop and remember. You ever have those times, parents or grandparents with, with kids, grandkids, when when they seem worried about something that's just kind of kind of silly to you, based on the past? And so, you know, you tell them it's time to get a bath, and they say, "Well, I'm just scared if I get a bath, I'm going to drown." You know, you've gotten a lot of baths and you haven't drowned it, you know. And we only put a quarter of inch of water in there. And, Actually, you don't even get a bath, you get a shower. And you know, we remind them, here's all the things that have happened before. You, you don't need to be scared because that, that's not happened before. You know, Daddy, I'm afraid you're going to drop me. You know what, Dad, Daddy's not dropped you. Yeah, well, maybe once or twice. But, you know, in general, what we remind them, we assure them by saying, listen, look, look at the track record here. This isn't going to happen because, look, we, we've always done this. We've taken care of you. We're going to keep taking care of you. And Christian, we need to remember of the care God has offered to his people throughout salvation history. And he is the perfect father. He is the perfect parent. We, we fail. We, we do drop kids. But he hasn't dropped his kids. And so Isaiah is saying to God's people, listen, remember what God has done. And then he says in verse 4, as on the day of Midian. And now some of you know what that reference is too. If you don't, you can look up Judges 6 through 8. In Judges 6 through 8, you have the account there of what was happening in the days of Midian. Uh, This was during the days of Gideon. That's a name that you might be familiar with. And it was at a time not so different than what Isaiah is speaking to in Isaiah 9 because it was another time in the history of God's people where they disobeyed God when they went after false and pagan gods and God allowed pagan rulers to rule over them. But then God in his grace is going to rescue them from these pagan rulers from these Midianites. And the Midianites were wicked, evil people. But the scripture doesn't tell us how many of them there were, but there were a lot of them. It does tell us that the number of camels they had were as many as the sand along the seashore. That's a lot of camels. And so God's word says, there's all these Midianites, and then he tells Gideon, I want you to take an army, and I want you to go in there, and I want you to wipe them out. And so Gideon starts in that process, but then God stops him. At that point, we read in Judges that Gideon has about 32,000 soldiers. Still, not quite matched for perhaps the hundreds of thousands he's going to encounter. But God wants Gideon to know something. And God wants us to know this same thing today that we are not the ones who fight the battle. God is the one who fights the battle. And we are not the ones on whom victory is dependent. God is the victor. And so what God then does with Gideon, if you know the story, is amazing. He first tells Gideon, "All right, go to the soldiers and ask them, if any of you are afraid, go home. And he goes from 32,000 to 10,000. Two-thirds of his troops flee. Because they're scared. And they're probably scared because the Midianites were many and because the Midianites were just evil wicked people and they knew it. But God didn't then say, Gideon, take the 10,000. He keeps taking that number lower and lower and lower. And if you know the account, you know that it gets down to 300 people. 300 against perhaps hundreds of thousands. And then God delivers His people from the Midianites by crushing the Midianites, under the hands of those three hundred, And when God does that, it is a reminder to his people that he is the one who wins the battle. And so if you don't know this, I'm just going to spoil a lot of the Bible for you. If you're just starting to read it and you're wanting to figure it all out, here's the theme, here it is, I'm telling you the end of it before you get there. God always wins. You don't have to be worried, you don't have to get to You know, midway through the Old Testament, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. God always wins. God is always victorious. And what Isaiah is reminding God's people of here in Isaiah 9 is, remember, our God is victor. Our God is conqueror. We can trust in Him. One day the light is coming and the light will destroy and obliterate the darkness because God always wins. And that means that the darkness doesn't have the last word. Cancer doesn't have the last word. Syndromes and sicknesses and genetic disorders do not have the last word. Somebody getting tragically killed in a way that no one can reconcile and understand, that doesn't have the last word. Islamic jihadists coming in with guns and wiping out people, doesn't have the last word. God is victor. And God has the last word. And what we need to remember as Christians in our culture today is that rather than cower and fear and gather as scared sheep worried about the next event that's going to happen and what are we going to do and how can we plan for it and what can we do to defend against it, we need to stop for a moment and remember God has made a promise. And God is faithful to keep His promises. And one day He will make all things new. And between this day and that, we are called to have our faith and our trust placed fully in Him because He is worthy, friend, of your faith and trust in mine. The light will not be consumed by the darkness because the great light, point three in your notes there, is our Savior, Jesus Christ who Isaiah goes on to remind us of an all-important truth in His Word. This great light, our Savior Jesus Christ, is both human and divine. And this is so important for us to understand. Because only a Savior, a Messiah, who is fully God and fully man, can fully conquer sin and death and rescue us from it. And that's what Isaiah goes on to share about. He prophesies about the humanity of Christ, verse 6, how he would be a a child that would be born, a son would be given. Those are terms of humanity. And so God's people would look for the Messiah as a man, that this will be a man. A a son will be born, a child will be given, but not just any man. He goes on in verses 6 and 7 to talk about how this this man would have a position of royalty, that this man would be a king. He uses phrases like, the government shall be on his shoulder. He speaks of his throne and his reign and how there would be justice and righteousness. And so these two things that Isaiah mentions would, would be held onto by God's people. This is what they would long for and look for in the Messiah. A man who would be king. A man who would rule. But then he gives a third component that honestly was confusing to many. Even up until the Gospels. That's why you see so much confusion in the Gospels related to the Messiah and who people understood the Messiah to be. Because Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us this wouldn't just be a man. This wouldn't just be a king. This would also be God. Fully God, fully man. That's who the Messiah would be. He tells us that through terms like verse 6. A wonderful counselor if you've got the King James, you have a comma there between wonderful and counselor. And that's it's very debatable, and we could spend a lot of time talking about the nuances of that. I think you can argue both points. I, I believe that this is not, there's not a comma there, a separation. They, these words go together, wonderful counselor, because when you put them together, that the meaning you get from that is that the Messiah, that Jesus, would be perfect in His counsel. And now think about that for a second. I'm going to share something with you here. Y'all are all messed up. I don't know if you knew that or not. I'm included in y'all. We all, we all, we're all messed up. And so you likely have been at a point or you'll be at a point where you, you need counseling. You need some type of counsel. Marriage counseling, financial counseling, just personal counseling. And so imagine for a moment that you're at that point and you need a counselor. And so you start flipping through the yellow pages and, and you're looking at ads for counselors and one of them says, well, come to Dr. So-and-so because he is perfect in his counsel. He gives 100% perfect advice. He's never given bad advice. Everything he's ever said has been the most perfect counsel you could ever get. Now, if that happens, I think you would know to do this, but you, you move on to the next ad. Because nobody's perfect in the advice they give. I see a few elbows. That's, I think, a biblical truth. No one's perfect in the counsel they give other than Jesus. The rest of us at time, we're going to give bad counsel. I often preface my counsel with people, depending on what it is we're talking about. If it's not something that's just absolutely clear in Scripture, I'll preface it with saying, listen, I could be wrong on this. And I often find myself talking to people who will say to me, well, my counselor told me. And I'll say, well, I don't know your counselor, but they're wrong. (laughs) We're not perfect in our counsel. But what Isaiah is saying here is that the Messiah would be the perfect counselor. Now, there's only one way that can happen. The Scripture says to us the only perfect counsel comes to us through the Word of God. And so God's Word says this of itself, it is perfect. And so, for example, the psalmist in Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing with the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 2 Timothy 3 talks about this, how God's Word is perfect and God breathed and it gives perfect counsel. And so if your counsel is from God's Word, it's going to be perfect all the time. It's going to be right all the time. And the beautiful thing about this and how it relates then to Jesus in the the incarnation is John chapter 1 tells us real clearly the Word, that the perfect counsel from the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory. That this perfect counselor is a connection to Jesus being the Word, and the Word is Jesus. He is fully man and fully God. And as Isaiah goes on in his description, he gives more titles that emphasize the divinity of Jesus. Mighty God. I don't think you need a lot of exposition on that one. It's speaking of the divinity of Jesus. It's speaking specifically of the conquering warrior who always defeats his enemy. Everlasting Father. There's some confusion here at times because when we look at the Trinity... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there can be some confusion when we start saying, well, Jesus is the Father, Father Jesus. That's not what Isaiah is saying here. Actually, a better translation when you get into the Hebrew of that term, everlasting Father, is He's the Father of all eternity. That, that, That means Jesus has command over all eternity. He had no beginning and He has no end and He rules over all things. That's why John tells us in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were created through Him. Why? Because He masters all of eternity. He's divine. And then Prince of Peace. That's a term we're going to talk about a lot more next week as we conclude this series and we talk about the peace that comes through this promise and this prophecy. But for now, know this. That the only true and lasting peace that you will ever have will come through Christ our King. And there's nothing else in this world that will give you that peace. And whatever it is you're chasing, whatever it is you think is going to offer that peace, if it has not already, it will fail you. People will fail. Pastors will fail. Loved ones will fail you. People who love you more than anyone else, they will at times fail. But the Prince of Peace will never fail. And He'll never fail because He is fully God and fully man. He came and lived a perfect life. And He went to the cross and He conquered sin and death. He could only do that as fully man, fully God. And in doing that, He paid the penalty that you and I deserve to pay. He paid our debt for us. Not just for one or, or a few, but for many. Because that is who He is and that's what He does. And the only way we will ever have lasting peace is through Him. And so the beauty of Isaiah 9 is by this Son of God coming, He gives us the opportunity then to become sons and daughters of God. I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier, so it's fitting I placed a quote there at the bottom of your notes from Lewis. And he said this about the Incarnation. The Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. And so if you have responded to the Gospel, then you are a son and a daughter of the King. That means you don't need to be worried about anything today. That means when the darkness comes, it doesn't have to overwhelm you because you know the One who brings light. And there's nothing for you to fear and nothing for you to be worried about. And you need to trust absolutely in Him. But if you've yet to repent and place your faith fully in Christ, there is a great number of things for you to fear. Principally, eternal separation from God and being under His wrath for all eternity. Because that's what the Gospel tells us. We will either stand before God saying to Him, I'm going to pay for my own sin. Or we'll stand before Him saying, we've trusted in the One who's already paid that debt. And I can't make that decision for you. Nobody can. The Gospel calls every one of us to decide to choose this day who we will follow. And so in this culture of darkness that we live in, I pray that you will choose light. And if you have, that you would remember that we follow the Prince of Peace and we need not fear. And so consider these things as we have this time of response now. If you don't mind to stand together as I pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this Lord's Day. And we thank you from the reminder from your Word that there's... There's no need for us to fear anything as believers. But Lord, for those who've yet to place their faith in Christ and repent of their sin, there is much to fear. And so Lord, I pray for those who've, who've yet to respond to the gospel that they would. And, and that they would commit to walking by faith. And that they would make that public through baptism and through joining this church family. And for those who have done that, Lord, I pray God... For them, as as many perhaps today are struggling with worry and anxiety and fear. Fear of things we can't see. Fear of things we can see. Lord, would you remind them again through your word and your spirit that the light overcomes the darkness and in Christ there is nothing for us to fear. For he has gone before us, he has conquered sin and death and he prepares for us a new heaven and a new earth that we will dwell in for eternity with him. Remind us of these truths when we're tempted, Lord, to fear and worry. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.